Okay, so today we are in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. We've been in a series, Exodus, this summer, really focusing on the themes of identity, belonging, and presence. And right now we are like right at the center. Not that I got the best scripture, but I really did get the best scripture to preach to you on. We're right at the Mosaic Covenant and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And I really want to focus our energies really this morning on a single, a single point. It's Exodus 19, 5 through 6. It says this. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I want to actually read it twice because of how important I think it is for us. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what we're going to do this morning is cover it in four parts. We're going to first talk about a kingdom of priests, second, a holy nation. Third, I have a little question. The question is holiness, really? And the fourth is presence. We're going to talk about that. So let's pray. Uh, holy and loving God, uh, I pray that you would help us to understand your word and enlighten our minds and our hearts that we might live into our calling this morning to be just as you call us, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Amen. Okay, first a kingdom of priests, but let me actually share by sharing a little bit of story on one of my friends. Uh, my friend's name is Tom. He works at a clean energy company here in town. He's in his mid-40s, blonde hair, 5'6", which means he goes to about here on me. He's in a, a big leadership role in his company, though. Uh, but he's very soft-spoken and gentle, really interesting guy. And um, he uh, used to work for the government. Now he works uh, in the business sector. And he told me one day about a really tough situation he had at work. One day he's in a meeting and it just all goes south. It just all goes south very quickly. Anger, raised voices on the edges of, of, of yelling at each other. Tension rises in the room. That night, it's just filled with stress and anxiety and anger. He knows he has to go back to work the next day and figure this out. And when I asked him about this experience, he said, Jeff, to me, it is so hard to be a Christian in my industry. It's just about power and money and success. What should I do? I wanted to offer that question to you. Have you ever been in a situation like that? What would you do when everything is going south? You can feel that anxiety in your gut and you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be the people of God right here and right now in this moment? That's Tom's story. I want to now hop into the story of the birth of a nation, which is what we've been doing in the sermon series on Exodus. So in previous weeks, as you know the story, we've learned that God heard the cries of the Israelites who were enslaved under Pharaoh, a real drastic salvation, the plagues, the Passover, they moved through the Sea of Reeds, they hustle on out in last work. Last week, we learned about how God tested them uh, in the wilderness. Uh, and now the Israelites are really at this early point as their formation of a people. And you have to remember that they were slaves for 400 years. They don't know how to be Israelites. They actually don't really know what that is. They know Egyptian rules and customs and rhythms and beings. And here God is going to make something different, something unique right here. It actually reminds me of a friend I have. He adopted two kids from rural India. And when they came back here to the United States, there was one American practice that these two little kids, they were in elementary school, thought was crazy, that we take clean water and we put it on our grass, like in the morning, right? Like, there in India, they didn't, they didn't even know, they didn't have enough clean water to drink. And here we're putting it on our grass every single morning. And it reminded me of the Israelites of saying, how, how do you create a people from a group of slaves and they're now refugees. Like, what does that look like? How do you actually form that? And this is the strategy of God. So if you have with me uh, in your Bible, read with me. We're gonna be in Exodus 19, okay? So God first, he brings them out into a desert. Exodus 19, I wanna read verses one and two. It says this. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. 
After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Okay, so here's the situation. They go through the Sea of Reeds. It takes about 10 or 11 months to walk through the desert to the desert of Sinai. And here's a map. Um, this map is the traditional route. We've seen this in other weeks too, but they move through the desert of reeds and then they go down at the bottom there. You can see is Rephidim, which was um, mentioned in this passage and there in their Sinai. This is actually modern day Egypt. This is uh, a real place. I actually wanted to show you another picture of what this place looks like here today. As you can see, it's just a terrible, dry, wet desert wasteland. There is just nothing, that, well, not nothing there. There is one thing there. There's St. Catherine's Monastery there. It's the traditional place of the giving of the law. The, bless the Orthodox. They, they like to hang out in a dry, uh, terrible place. But I want to show you this because when I read the Bible, I don't know if you have a, a tendency to do this. I sometimes think that the Bible world is like Mordor or Narnia, kind of a mythical far off place where I don't know. Well, it's actually not the case. God actually works inside of human history with real people just like us in particular times and in particular places. God is interacting right in a very particular place of human history. So there they are at the base of this mountain, or if you're a Colorado and you'd say base of like a small foothill, right? Not really a mountain, but nonetheless, they're base, base of this hill, and God says something central to them about their identity that is incredibly, I think, important for us today as well. This is Exodus 19, we're going to read verses 3 through 6 again. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you in eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So he says this, and then the narrative, it's, it gets actually pretty dramatic. Dense cloud on the mountain, lightning, thunder, Sinai is covered in smoke. God actually comes down in fire. The mountain's shaking. The people are shaking a little bit too. You get this very drastic display of God's holiness, of saying there's something different here. You had the, there are the gods in Egypt, but there's something quite different here, right? But before we actually get to the holiness aspect, I do want to talk about this part of whole earth is mine, and you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. My question is, what is a priest? Billy actually talked about this uh, several months ago. But a priest generally does two things. A priest mediates the presence of God to the people and intercedes on behalf of the people to God. So in Israelite history, of course, they had a, a priestly class. They were the Levites, right? They took care of the sacrifices, tabernacle, and then temple. But the question of this passage is strange is that it's not just kind of one slice of the Israelites are to be a kingdom priest. They are all to be a kingdom of priests. My question is, if all of the people is to be a kingdom of priests, for whom would they intercede or for whom would they mediate the presence of God? Israel was to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to show the character of God to all people. It wasn't election for the sake of their privilege. It was for the sake of God's promises to Abraham that are now coming more and more into fulfillment. I gotta show you one more map. So they're moving to the promised land, okay? They're moving into Canaan. And Canaan, this area, is a strategic land bridge between ancient world powers. So they just came from Egypt, which was a big deal back in the day. A little bit later, 
Assyria, uh, Assyria and Babylon in the Fertile Crescent, uh, they would be ancient world powers, and you kind of have to go through Israel, otherwise you gotta take the desert, and your army's gonna like, get tired and really angry, like you just don't wanna go in the desert, which is why they had all that complaining. So you have to go through Israel to do that, right? Later in human history, the Persians, and then the Greeks and the Romans, Israel's still sort of right at this connecting point, even today it's right at the connecting point between Asia, Europe, and Africa. It's like God is going to place his people at the intersection of I-25 and 70. You just cannot miss it. You cannot miss it. You could try to just not do that and not pay attention, but God is making a kingdom of priests to show something about his character to all these people that are gonna be passing right through Israel. Israel is to be a kingdom of priests, okay? And here's my second point that I wanted to make is that they are also to be a holy nation. Well, what does that mean? God gives this dazzling display of his power um, uh, on Mount Sinai, right? And he says, you are going to be a holy nation. And then in Exodus 20, a very famous passage of the Bible, we're gonna read this, he gives the law. So I'm gonna read just verses one and two, Exodus 20. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then right there, we have the 10 commandments. So a helpful way for me to categorize these is there's four vertical commandments and six horizontal. The vertical ones have to do with worship and the six horizontal ones have to do with um, social relationships. So the vertical commandments here is you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven images. Don't misuse the name of the God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Jesus summarizes these by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then there's the six horizontal commandments relating to relationships with others. Honor your father and mother. Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, and finally, you shall not covet. Uh, Jesus summarized these saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as 21st century Americans, I think when, when we read um, these, we think these are personal ethics that I should live by, and actually they are. Right? But God is actually doing something much more. He is setting the foundation of a new society. He is revealing to this group of slaves, this is what a healthy, good life and community looks like. Live in these ways. That is, their faith was to not just be private, it was to be public and communal and lived out in all these areas of life as we interact with each other in social relationships. Let me tell you a story about a friend. Her name is Carla. Um, Carla works at electrical contractors here in Denver uh, called Wayfield Group. And um, years ago, they were trying to hire electricians. I don't know if you noticed in this economy, it's a little higher to hire anybody, uh, but it was also higher, difficult to hire electricians. They just needed more electricians at their company. She also cares deeply about um, the community, so she interacts with a lot of nonprofits in town. Uh, and she says, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start an apprentice program that trains uh, people coming from addiction and a criminal background, how to be electricians, <clears throat> excuse me. For Carla, uh, giving somebody a second chance uh, at work is directly related to her faith that she has received a, a second chance in Christ as well. See, her faith is personal and deeply intimate, but it is also public and it has both the vertical and the horizontal aspects of it too. She found a way to live out and embody her faith. When we think about the Ten Commandments, I just want to make the point that this is, it has incredible societal implications. So honor your father and mother, like family relationships, the building block of a healthy community. The command against murder builds a society around the infinite value of human life. Every single person, no matter how old or young, is infinitely valuable. 
Command against adultery gives a vision for the centrality of fidelity in marriage and the marriage relationship for a healthy society. To not steal guarantees really private property and protecting particularly the vulnerable, those that might take it away from them. Um, as well as bearing false witness. Boy, it's not only whether you're lying to your friends, right? This is about justice in the courts. This is a, you cannot have justice if everybody's lying, you don't know who to trust, right? You actually have to have that. I want to give you just one quick example of this. Um, Gary Haugen started a ministry called International Justice Mission. Uh, he wrote an interesting book called The Locust Effect. So a locust is a bug that in its path, we actually saw this in the plagues, right? It eats everything. And he makes the point in this book is that violence, especially in the developing world, when there's violence and there isn't strong laws, it eats everything and undoes economic development. It's very tragic. He shared a story in this book about a widow and um, her children. And because there was not a strong police system, quite literally, a, um, a man and a group of his friends forced them out of their house and made them live on the streets and they took over the house. Thou shalt not steal, right? But that has incredible implications for our community and how we live in. When, when we are in 21st century America and we oftentimes only think about our faith as personal but not public, but I'd argue that the Ten Commandments are bringing these right together, that they are to influence, your faith is to influence all aspects of your life. It seems as if the God that we worship and the society that we build every single day in our work, in our families, in our community, all that work we do, those are a part of one seamless whole of redemption. So let me give you a couple more illustrations because through my work in the last 10 years, I have a chance to meet just very interesting people that are doing interesting things, living out this kind of dual aspect of vertical and horizontal faith, living out their faith through their work. For example, here's Mary Poplin. Um, she is a lifelong teacher. Uh, an educator in the public schools. She knows as a Christian, she can't directly share the gospel during class hours with her students. But she, what, here's what she can do, and she shared this. She said, I can pray for my students. I can present about religion fairly. I can choose curriculum that resonates with the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, she can teach about virtue and right and wrong. And now that she's retired, she still cares for her kids and her grandkids, but she chooses to also work and give of her professional skills because she believes it's an aspect of her calling. Uh, this is my friend Robin. He is an Indian-American immigrant to the U.S. He went to a college, and he wondered if you could be a Christian and an investor at the same time. And, and he said, huh, well, love your neighbor as yourself. What would that look like in business? And he decided that business had several different neighbors. You have customers, you have employees, you also have communities and supply chains. He said, could I develop an investing model that really does love your neighbor as yourself in a big way. And so he created a company called Eventide Asset Management that strives to honor God and serve its clients by investing in companies that are creating compelling value for the global common good. Interesting folks, and I wanted to share this because Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in their personal and their public lives. And I do think that we too then have the calling to be priests of a sort. In, our, in the marketplace, in public education, in government, in retail, in big jobs, in volunteer jobs, in small jobs, in actually every single place that we find ourselves. See, what's interesting is Israel had a mission. They had a mission. 
And when I say that word mission, sometimes we think about the, the volunteer things we do or the money we give, and it is important to give generously, and it is important to volunteer. But really, the mission of Israel was their character. Like, if they were to live in a certain way, all the nations would see them, and then they would see the one true God. Okay, but here's my third point. My third point is this. It's holiness. Really? <laughs> is that for me? Have you ever gone to church uh, and been like driving home and said, I'm so going to do that. I'm going to kill it this week. I'm going to do everything right. And then 30 seconds later, you're exploding at somebody in your car. It's just like an emotional bomb went off. That's never happened in my family. Um, it's never, ever happened. Yeah. Uh, but it is easy, I think, to say, yeah, I'm totally doing that. And then the reality of the human condition kind of comes right up on us, Right. Actually, the Israelites, their response to giving of the law, do you know what they said? I'm so in. I am going to do that. Sounds good. And chapters later, they're worshiping a golden calf. Right? Um, there is one aspect of the law here that is particularly the Ten Commandments that's really tough, the do not covet one. I mean, it's kind of easy to look back at your last week, think, didn't kill anybody. It's good. No adultery. That's good, didn't steal anything, like I'm good to go. But the covet thing is actually really tough. Like I really want something, I really internally desire something that isn't mine to have. Like maybe their well-behaved kids, their social media success, their cabin in the mountains, their good looks. I don't know if you've ever felt that. But it is a real trick here because not only does the law, but then when Jesus comments on the law, he goes and moves actually to the human heart. So the Sermon on the Mount is a commentary mostly on the law. And Jesus says, okay, have you ever cursed somebody in your heart and just thought they were worthless and wish you could just kind of wipe them off the face of the earth? That, that too is murder. Or have you ever thought that the pleasure of another person's touch would just give you everything that you really need? That's adultery. Have you ever, I've never done this either, but have you ever lied just a little bit to make yourself just to look a little bit better, more powerful, maybe in a social situation with your friends? Have you ever done that? Jesus says that's like verbal manipulation. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Uh, let me share a personal story. Um, this was uh, a couple years ago, but I was getting ready one morning and I was looking at myself in the mirror. <laughs> Looked at a few more crow's feet than I had when I was going to seminary. Uh, had some gray hair starting to grow and I just said out loud, God, when do I really change? When do I really change? I didn't have a good week. Um, I had a stressful time at work. I felt a wave of depression and sadness come over me. It made it very hard for me to interact with my family. Lost my temper with my kids probably 12 times, maybe 50. I don't think my wife was counting. I wasn't. It was, just, it, was, it was just a really hard week. And I just looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, so when do I become holy? Like, how does this actually work? How does this really work? When, when do I actually do this? I've been a Christian for 22 years. I've written books. I've led a Christian nonprofit. Like, I've done all the right things. When do I actually become holy? How does this really function? Why am I still like this? The question of my own uh, faith journey has really not been whether Christianity is true or not. Uh, I think there's just overwhelming evidence, historical, philosophical evidence that it is. But the real question for me is, can we really change? Can, like, really, considering what you know about yourself, when you're really honest, right? Can we really change? I think Protestants are tempted to say, no, we can't keep the law. I mean, we're saved by grace, not by works, so the law doesn't apply to us. Holiness kind of sounds like legalism, right? Not for me. 
I don't need to obey because Jesus already did for me. He died for my sins. The problem with that is that is only half of the gospel. There's only a half. The full gospel is Jesus died for my sins, but he was raised for my salvation. And salvation, not only in terms of where we die, but the full life of God promised and poured out through the Holy Spirit to us, right? Then if the new creation has come, when do I start actually acting like that? How does this actually work out? Like we can't, we're not so easily let off the hook. In our gospel reading today, Jesus says, the people that want to kind of disregard the law, they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. And then he has a really annoying verse later in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. And that word perfect really in the Greek means whole or complete, which doesn't make it any easier for me, frankly. But be whole and complete just as your father in heaven is whole and complete. C.S. Lewis comments on these. He says, that command be perfect is not just idealistic gas, nor does a command to do the impossible he's going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. We were all like Pinocchio, wooden, wooden boys, inanimate, until some magic is now coming and we are to become real and human once more. We are to become the new humanity, right? This is good news. Uh, let me just point out my fourth point here, which is presence. Um, in accidents, God just doesn't give identity and belonging, and we're gonna be talking about this from here on out, but he gives his presence. The rest of the book of Exodus is largely about his presence. God decides to not just give these things, but he decides to dwell with them. The word tabernacle, just, it just means dwell. God is dwelling with them. He gives his presence because he realizes that it's not through our effort, it is through his presence that actually changes us. Um, at this point in my faith journey, I'm, really just, it's kind of sad to say, but I'm just discovering a 2,000 year old tradition of spiritual formation. Um, and, and I've really tried about everything else to see if it would work and I've come up dry. Um, and so I've reluctantly said, I gotta figure out what this tradition is. And I wanna share with you one idea that's been helpful to me and it's this idea of consent, consent. Look, God is always initiating with us. It's not like through our if the center of Christian faith is grace, which it is grace, by the way, if the center of Christian faith is grace, he is always initiating with us. And it's not only through like our good deeds. Our good deeds actually can actually move us backwards, right? Consent is to say that God only is asking for us to consent to the presence of his work in our life, okay? Let me just give you one simple practice that maybe you'll consider doing it. It's a, very, it's a 30 second practice that you can do during the week and that's been helpful to me. And the practice is this, notice, welcome, consent. Notice, welcome, consent. So let me explain that. This is a version of what's called the welcoming prayer. And notice is the first, um, the first part. We oftentimes are not even noticing the stress and the anxiety and the difficulty and the pain that we have in our life. Uh, and the first part of the welcoming prayer is just to notice your anxiety. My wife carries her anxiety in her gut. It actually feels like somebody has punched her. Me, it's really goofy, but I'm a nerdy head guy, as you could probably tell. So I carry my anxiety in my head. Uh, my head actually tingles sometimes, and I feel stress in, in, my, um, in my shoulders. Why is this so important? If you don't notice how you're feeling at any given time, you'll find yourself exploding and doing different things, and you don't even know why. You don't even, you don't even not even aware that you're stressed out at that particular time. The first part is just to notice in your body how I'm feeling. The second part is really from Thomas Keating and it's about welcome. And rather than fleeing a situation or trying to cope, 
you could just say this, I let go of my need for security, affection, and control, and I welcome this moment as it is. Rather than thinking all these other things over here are gonna give me what I'm really looking for, what I really want, you just say no to those and say, I welcome this moment and all of its messed upness and all of my own messed upness and the people all around me too. I just welcome it as it is and I let go of my need for um, security, affection, and control. And the final step is consent. Just say, Holy Spirit, I consent to your transformative power in my life right here, right now. I consent, right? Um, one of the things I've always struggled with Christian faith is I can't see God. I can see the body of Christ, I get that, but I really want to see Jesus. <laughs> the first thing I do when I get to heaven, I will put my hand in his hand and in his side. I want to touch his body. So whenever I do these kind of spiritual activities, I think, where are you? I've got so many things going on the week, during the week, and it's hard for me actually to do this. Dallas Willard said something that was uh, helpful to me. He didn't say it to me, he said it in a book. I feel like I know him, but anyway. Um, he did say something uh, really good in one of his books. Where is God? He is in the space right next to your head right now. Like, I don't know if you want to picture it, but like right next to your ear. When I first heard that, I'm like, oh, it's a little close. <laughs> it's a little personal bubble invasion. Yeah, it's actually like that. But it is important to say, if the presence of God in Exodus, if he is there dwelling with his people through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, he still dwells with you today. The trick for us is to become aware. The trick is to become aware. And little practices like this, like they're not magic. They don't change you right, uh, right away, but kind of like a water running over stones, they can smooth it out over time. They really can smooth it out over time. Um, when we think about our mission to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, um, holiness is not flawless living. At the end of the day, holiness is Christ in us. This is what Paul said, right? We become holy through association, through hanging out with the Holy One. This is actually how we become holy. Um, Let's refer, I want to return to our, our friend Tom who had that uh, day at work that was going deeply south on him. Um, everything was melting down at once. And I asked Tom, I said, hey, how, how did you, so how did you respond? He went outside actually that day and he prayed. And he told me, oh, Jeff, it just hit me all of a sudden. For that situation, I should be grateful. Here I have an opportunity to extend God's grace and forgiveness in this moment to people who don't know him. That's what I'm going to do. And the next day at work, that's what he did. The kingdom of priests, a holy nation. <laughs>